really thankful for the people who lead us into God's presence and uh, kind of remind us who it is we uh, gather to worship. You know, I wish when we sing a song just like the, the lyrics of the song we just sang are really beautiful lyrics, and I just wish it was true that uh, Jesus Christ, you are my one desire. Um, and that you are all I seek. Uh, the truth about me is uh, too much of the time he is not my one desire and he is not all that I seek. And, um, and that's why I need you all. I need to be here with you. Um, I need to be reminded in worship of who God is and of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that helps reorient and correct my thinking and my heart. So this is that place in the worship where we ask God to teach us, and uh, let's do that together. Father, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for the opportunity, the freedom, the privilege of getting together with others and being reminded of who you are and how you work. And would you speak to us this morning as we uh, enter into a study together? Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the... Uh, Weeks uh, ahead, we are going to immerse ourselves in the life of one of the most extraordinary human beings that ever lived. Uh, he's a pivotal character in the Old Testament, and uh, humanly speaking, he's the founder of the nation of Israel. He uh, gave Israel the law, the Torah. He established Israel's cult or Israel's worship, all the worship rituals that uh, they had. He helped organize their government. He led them out of bondage and into freedom. Uh, today, there are three major world religions that cite Moses as uh, the one who gave them their moral code. Um, and uh, just quite a, a remarkable individual. You could argue that outside of Jesus Christ, Moses is the single most influential human being that ever lived. You can make a good argument to that case. And um, my hope is that as we enter into this study together, Something will happen to our hearts. We will be changed. Um, the next couple of months, we are going to get to know Moses really well. And uh, what I want to do this morning, for intro's sake, because this really is an introduction to this series, I want to do two things. First, I want to give you some background information that I hope will be helpful to kind of set us up for this study. And uh, then I'm going to give you uh, three reasons to join us here on a Sunday morning. Uh, the reasons that if, if you do join us in this study and, and make this a priority, these are things that I think can happen, will happen in our lives as we study together. And if you've got your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever you use, uh, you can get that out to read or you can follow along on the screen. Uh, but this will give us a little context as we dive into the life of Moses. This is Exodus chapter 2. The... Um, the text says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, any parents here ever have a baby who wasn't a fine child? Yeah. <laughs> I find that so interesting. Sometimes the, uh, just the language of Scripture. When, uh, when she saw that he was a fine child, I wonder what she'd have done if he wasn't a fine child. I don't know. Anyway, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Boy, that's a job right there, right there. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, 
And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister, or his sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. And he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. How would you like that, moms? That's good. That's a good deal right there. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So here's kind of where it all begins for Moses. Most of you are familiar with that story or you saw the movie. But uh, (laughs) centuries earlier, uh, something else that's very important and very interesting happened. And this is with the individual named Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis uh, 15, Genesis 17. God makes a covenant, enters into a binding agreement with Abraham. God tells Abraham to leave his home of Ur to go to a new land. It's a promised land. Uh, This is a land that God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And it's a place where your descendants will multiply, so much so that they will become a nation, a great nation, too numerous to number. God was making or creating a people for himself. That was his plan. And they would be a nation called Israel. And God said that the whole world would be blessed by this nation, this nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants. That's because these people were supposed to be different. These people were going to represent God to others. And God wanted his people, and this is where this language actually gets birth, to be a light to the nations. And uh, so you know the story. Abraham obeys, and he leaves his home there in Ur, and he travels down to the promised land. And he travels around and travels around, makes several trips actually to Egypt on occasion because of famine. Eventually, Abraham dies, and God continues to keep his promises that he made to Abraham in this covenant. He continues to keep those promises to Abraham's descendants. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons, from which we get the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you may remember that a great famine occurs in the Middle East at this time, and Jacob's family has to actually travel down to Egypt in order to survive, literally, because of the famine. And through a very interesting series of events, it's a story well worth reading, Jacob's son, Joseph, becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. How many of you have seen the musical? (laughs) Joseph's technically, yeah, it's a great musical. And Joseph administers the food during this time, all the food that's been gathered for the last seven years. Joseph is the one administering that food. And uh, for a while, Jacob's sons, because they have moved down to Egypt, they enjoy a very favored status there in Egypt. But time passes. 400 years, in fact, go by. And things change. Uh, The Israelites have uh, become a numerous people in Egypt, and the attitudes of the Egyptians change completely. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. So whatever happened back then, that's old, old, old history. 
Look, he said, this is the king speaking to his people. The Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them. Again, there's that word ruthlessly. Read between the lines. What would life have been like for these Israelites? It would not have been pleasant. Slave masters, taskmasters, constantly telling you what you do, when you do it, how you do it. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. Wow. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Pharaoh's a dumb man, I guess. I don't know. He buys that. So, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God... He gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And that's the context for why Moses' mother sends her baby floating down the Nile River in a reed basket. And let's stop there for a second, kind of evaluate this, this history of God interacting with his people. Let's consider the big picture. Quite honestly, uh, it would seem at this point that whatever plan God had, that plan is dead. That plan is not working. God has been silent now for some 400 years. No prophets, no new revelation. He's not speaking to his people. Uh, his people are slaves. They possess no land whatsoever. Uh, his people have nearly forgotten him. In fact, a little later on in a verse that's actually a commentary, on this time when, when Israel uh, is living there in Egypt in Joshua 24, it tells us that the Israelites had come to that place where they were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. So the Israelites have actually, they, they've forgotten their God. And by all appearances, God's plan, whatever it was, is not working and has died. Having a people who represent him to the nations, a people living in covenant community with him, if that was a dream, it's a distant dream at this point. One that, again, is not working. But then this one little baby is born, Moses. And God's plans start to unfold again, right when everything pretty much looks completely hopeless. A Hebrew baby boy is found by, of all people, the daughter of Pharaoh. Can I get a wow? Yeah, because that's a wow. Wow, what luck, what incredible luck. And how ironic, think about this. The death sentence that Pharaoh had given for babies like Moses, 
That becomes the very thing that causes Moses to float down the Nile, which leads to Moses being adopted into the Pharaoh's family. So Moses grows up with the finest education and upbringing imaginable. And Pharaoh, who intended to keep Israel in bondage, ends up serving as the benefactor and the sponsor of the very one who's going to liberate Israel. Can I get a wow? Yeah, that's a wow right there. It really is. And on top of all that, Moses' own sister, a young woman, I assume, negotiates a deal where Moses' mother can care for him in his early years and get paid for it. There you go. That's God at work. And so whether Moses' family or even Moses himself knew it or not, God was at work in the finer details of all of this story, you see. And we're going to see this happen over and over and over and over again in Moses' story. Moses' whole life is the story of God's relentless, miraculous pursuit and care of his people. And folks, God still works this way. Literally nothing has changed. Cultures are different. People aren't. And God is not any different either. Often behind the scenes, God is at work. Imperceptibly, God is at work in our circumstances, orchestrating events for the accomplishment of his will. You see, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And guess what? That is a prayer that is being and will continue to be answered. Whether you or I pray it or not, that is a powerful movement behind the history of human beings. There's an old story. A kid comes from Sunday school one time, comes home and uh, there in Sunday school, he's been studying Moses. His dad says, hey, how was Sunday school? What'd you study? So oh, we're studying the life of Moses. Well, what did you learn, son? Well, dad, I learned that Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and they came to a, something called the Red Sea and Moses got some boats and floated the Israelites across there and then Pharaoh came after him and Moses blew him up with dynamite. And the dad's, really, son? That, that's what the Sunday school teacher told you? Well, no, Dad, if I told you what she told me, you would never, ever believe it, you know? <laughs> and sort of, we're going to run into that story over, and it's, it's almost unbelievable what God does, because he is constantly doing the miraculous. He is constantly doing amazing things in the lives of his people, working in powerful ways to deliver them, to provide for them, to even protect his People. And at times, God's people don't like what God is doing one bit, nor do they acknowledge it, nor are they aware of it. Any of this sounding familiar at all? The people of God oftentimes don't appreciate what God is up to. And in fact, they even complain about it. We're going to bump into that quite a few times in this, in this study of ours. The people of God complain about what God is doing. They don't like his timing. They don't like what he provides. They don't like where he's taking them. And on and on it goes. There are certain times, too, when Moses longs for God to show up and to work in a powerful way, right? But God doesn't do what Moses wants him to do. In fact, it seems on the surface of things, God's not doing anything. There are times when we're going to bump into Moses when he feels all alone, very confused, very helpless. And he can uh, really, about the only thing he can do is just trust and wait on God to do something. And he doesn't know what. And we're going to see that sometimes uh, Moses responds to God in obedience. And other times he does not. He's very much like you and me. He's very ordinary. The good news is God is not ordinary. And we'll 
kind of see how those two things interact. So why study this guy Moses? I mean, having said just that, well, three reasons I'm going to give you. First, as we study Moses' life, I believe we can get to know God better, kind of what we were singing about a moment ago, that we want to have him as our one desire. By studying how God worked in the life of Moses and by watching Moses respond faithfully sometimes, unfaithfully at other times, we are going to get to know and understand God better and how God interacts and works with his people. One thing about Moses that we'll see, Moses is a human being with an insatiable appetite to know God better. Let me give you some examples. Uh, We're going to study all of these things in more detail, but uh, the example of the burning bush, you know, when Moses is out there and God calls him over to the burning bush. During that incident, it's so interesting, Moses wants to know God's name. Understand, that's the first time in Scripture anybody asks God what his name is. And we're going to look at the name of God and we're going to come to appreciate what that name means and why it's significant back then to Moses and even today to us. Uh, During another encounter that Moses has with God, Moses gets his orders from God. He's told what to do, but he doesn't really want to leave God's presence. So he, he asks to be able to stay in God's presence and he asks God if he can see his glory. Now understand that too is the first time in scripture anybody ever asks if they can see the glory of God. It's Moses' insatiable appetite to know God better. And we're going to look at that episode too in Moses' life. Uh, And we're going to learn something very important about God, very practical about God that impacts or should impact how we live our lives day to day. On another occasion, we're told that it was Moses' custom uh, to get up and to go to a tent. It was called the tent of meeting. And uh, there he would meet with God. He would also Uh, occasionally meet with people there and render judgments of various kinds. Uh, But when he would get up and and meet with God, it was quite a community event. In uh, Exodus 33, we read these words. It says, And whenever Moses went out to the tent, the tent of meeting, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. Just picture yourself doing this. Uh, Try to picture this. Moses, as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. What's the pillar of cloud represent? Yeah, God. It represents the very presence of God himself. And, you know, we don't really know exactly what this looked like, but pillar, what's a pillar look like? Kind of a column, yeah. And it, but it's a cloud, right? And uh, there may, we know that at night, what, it, what was the presence of God signified by? Fire, yeah. And uh, fire and smoke and things like that, probably some mixture thereof. Uh, So the people are watching this event. Moses has gone into the tent. There's this pillar of cloud, and it's there at the entrance to the tent. And it says, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped. Became a worship experience. Moses is meeting with God, and the people would worship. Uh, each at the entrance to his tent. And then it says this, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. That's one of the most amazing statements in all of scripture right there. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And as we study the life of Moses, this uh, person who's described as a friend of God, we are going to learn, I hope, how to become closer to God 
how to hopefully also be like Moses in this, a friend of God. We will learn to speak to God intimately, face to face, friend to friend, uh, as it were, just like Moses did. And I, I would just ask you uh, a favor, really. Um, and I want to challenge you in this as well. For the next couple of months, because that's how long we're going to be in this book, the book of Exodus, would you make it a priority to be here with us? You see, if you are a Jesus follower, the Bible calls you a disciple. And the word disciple actually means learner, somebody who's always, always learning. And one of the reasons that we meet here to worship every week is precisely because we believe we need to learn. In fact, we need to learn together to get to know ourselves better, to get to know God better, to get to learn how to prioritize things in our lives in a way that honors God and glorifies God. Uh, This is one of the very things that when we have studied the life of Jesus before, we see him doing. Uh, When Jesus was here on earth, he would every week regularly gather together with others to worship God and to learn, to be a learner. Here at Deer Creek, we call this reaching up. It's connecting with God. It's being in a context just like this. It's one of the very basic priorities of a disciple. Regular, consistent, gathering together with others to worship and to learn. And so I would just challenge you to make being here, reaching up, a practical priority in your life in order to be a learner. Join us each week in an in-depth look at the life of really one of the most important men to have ever lived. Become a student of the Bible with us. That would be my challenge to you. Now, uh, you know, the Bible is a very, very unique book. Um, If I were God, it's a bad way to start any sentence, but if I were God and I was going to write a book, uh, I would not have written what God wrote. I mean, shock, surprise, right? Uh, I would have thought of systematizing it differently. Chapter one, my attributes, you know, omniscience, omnipresence, you know, those kinds of things, loving, just, uh, kind, all of these kinds. Just kind of write a paragraph about each one of them. There you go. That's who I am. Chapter two, let's talk about prayer. Eight principles of powerful prayer. And I would just kind of outline them for you, right? Chapter three, marriage. Do you want this? How to make a mighty marriage? You know, kind of a kind of a chapter. Parenting, the primary pitfalls of pathetic parenting, that kind of thing. And a lot of people wish that the Bible was that kind of book. Some people make the mistake of trying to read it like it's that kind of book. Simply lists of things to know and things to do and how to, sort of a self-help kind of book. But God didn't do it that way. Not at all, in fact. The Bible is not a book of lists of things to do. It's not a self-help book at all. If you have ever read much of it, you know it's a book of stories. It's a book of poems. It's a book of history. uh, It's a book of prophetic visions and revelations. It's full of wonderful, rich, sad, happy, horrible stories of people relating to God and God relating to people. And the reason God wrote his book that way is because God is a person. God has a story to tell, and he wants us to know him personally. He wants us to know his story. And that's what the Bible is. God's story of interaction with people and people's stories of interacting with God. The Psalms, those are basically just people writing about their interactions with God, their conversations with God. And so it's back and forth, God's interactions with the people, people's interactions with God. So understand, to learn is to be a disciple. 
We are called to put ourselves in situations to keep learning. To learn, you must enter into the lives of the people and the personalities and even the culture of the ancient Middle East to rightly understand the Bible. Because sometimes we read parts of the Bible and we read it through our lenses and the, the culture, uh, the, the lens of our culture makes their culture seem stupid or dumb or why did they do that? So we have to understand their culture. And all of this takes patience, takes information sometimes that we don't have, it takes study, it takes humility. I'm not here to judge that culture from just the perspective of my own culture. I'm here to understand that culture. It takes thought, it takes reflection, it takes all of these kinds of things to be a disciple who's learning, you see. And so I would just challenge you, in order to get the most out of the next few weeks, actually next couple of months, would you become a student of the book of Exodus with me? And just read it, and reread it, write notes about it. Here's a question I have. And uh, just kind of absorb this and become familiar with the people and the circumstances of this book. Get to know Aaron. Get to know Miriam. Get to know Joshua. What were their failures? What were their successes? Get to know God who is unfolding a plan here to save his people, even though they don't always know it, they don't always appreciate it, and they certainly don't always understand it. And as you read, listen carefully because God wants to speak to you and to me through these very stories, these very encounters of people encountering God and God engaging his people. He really does want to speak to you and me. And that would be our objective to hear from him. He wants us to know him better. He really does. And that will happen as you are consistently reaching up, making him a practical priority in your weekly rhythm, connecting with him each week. That's the first thing. Anybody going to be here with me next week? Hmm, good. Okay. Hope you're not lying. Okay. A second thing that you can see happen as we enter, enter into and engage in this study, you're going to learn to trust God. This is one of my prayers for myself and for you. You're going to learn to trust God, hopefully like you've never trusted him before, because you're going to see him involved doing so many things behind the scenes. It's going to make you wonder, maybe he's actually at work behind the scenes in my life. You know, the whole story of Moses, too, is written very carefully to testify to God's amazing power to deliver his people, even in the midst of impossible circumstances. Another thing about the story of Moses is it's constantly reminding us that God is up to something when we don't know what it is he's up to. Let me give you some examples. You know, Israel is living in a state of slavery, in a state of bondage in Egypt. Their, their whole situation looks mighty hopeless. They have little money. They have no influence. They have no army. They have no seat at the table of power whatsoever. Now, Egypt, on the other hand, quite the contrast, they are the major power of this region, and they have been forever, forever. You know, uh, about 3000 BC, Egypt was a, a powerhouse in this area. And the story of Exodus takes place, depending on whether you dated early or late, you know, 13, 1400 BC, that kind of thing. The pyramids have been around a thousand years by the time Moses shows up. So Moses was a tourist also seeing the pyramids. Uh, Egypt has been a dominant power in this area for over 1,700 years. So you tell me, what are the odds of Israel successfully escaping Egypt, securing their freedom, occupying a land already occupied by Canaanites, Moabites, Edomites, termites, whatever kind of ite you want? What are the odds of that? 
Well, I would submit to you they're near zero. It's near zero odds that these people are going to get away with anything from the Egyptians. But God goes to work and delivers his people through a little baby in a stupid reed basket. How dumb is that? How stupid is that? How incredibly wow is that? And the question that we're going to be confronted with again and again and again and again in the life of Moses, and this is, a, this is kind of God's great question for every time, for every age, for every group of people. He's always asking this question, and the question is this, who will trust me? That's the question. Who will trust me in the midst of whatever circumstances you're going through? Who will trust me? Who will trust me just enough to obey me? It's always the million-dollar question. And Moses' story is all about trusting God. It's all about trusting him enough to obey him. Um, in Hebrews, this is interesting, because, of course, Hebrews is written many, 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 many centuries after, after Moses. And uh, it's kind of a look back on the life of Moses. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, it describes Moses' life this way. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. There you go again, you know, not an ordinary child. No, of course not. Um, I've never, never, ever met with a, you know, set of parents who said, hey, look at our ordinary baby. No. <laughs> and uh, because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Again, by faith, when he had grown up, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Wow. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time, meaning in this life, just for this lifetime. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. There was some sense in which Moses understood that to trust in God was to have a savior. To trust in God was to believe in the purposes of God, which someday would be to bring a king who would rule and reign with righteousness and with justice and with truth. And so he's, in that sense, looking forward, trusting to what God is going to do, the kingdom that God is going to bring, and the king is going to sit on the throne. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible, Jesus, God. By faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood. Remember that meal? That was that whole thing that prefigured the sacrifice of Jesus. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Why? They weren't in covenant with God. They weren't walking in faith as a disciple, you see. The point of all that is, is that Moses lived by faith. Day in, day out, he, he trusted God. He grappled with the reality of trusting God in his specific set of circumstances. Question, do you want to live by faith? I mean, we declare that we do, and sometimes in songs that we sing. You know, but do you want to learn how to trust God the way Moses learned how to trust God, then I would just say join us here each week as we study thoughtfully, reflectively, prayerfully, openly, 
one of the striking things about Moses was that he actually expected uh, God to engage him, to meet him in his circumstances. One of the things that we're going to do in the weeks ahead is we're going to look at some of Moses' prayers because we'll see how God reacts towards Moses. We'll also see how Moses reacts back toward God. And he does that in his prayers. Moses prays some amazing prayers of faith and prayers of praise. One of the, again, striking things about Moses is that when he prayed, he actually expected God to hear his prayer. He actually expected that to happen. Uh, There was a pastor one time visiting a lady in the hospital and he would he went in and he sat down and he chatted with her for a, a bit. She was in a very bad way and not doing well at all and a great deal of pain. And he asked her, is there anything that I can do for you? And she said, yes, please pray. And he asked, he said, well, how could I pray for you? She said, well, pray for my healing. And so he prayed, you know, Father, be with my sister. She's in a lot of pain. Give the doctors wisdom as they try to care for her and figure out how to help her. God, if it's your will, if it's possible, heal her. If it's not, then just help her to cope. And you, you know her father, just be with her and sustain her in this. He finishes his prayer and he sits down next to the bed, her bed. And she's sitting there and she's silent for a little bit. And, and she's thinking and she says, you know, I feel better. Yeah, my, my pain's going away. Yeah, I think I'm healed, she says. And uh, the pastor is getting a little concerned, you know. He's just kind of observing and what have you. She says, yeah, I want to talk to the doctor. And she gets up out of her bed. Now the pastor's really concerned. He's thinking, oh, man, what have I got started here? She goes, she finds the nurse. The nurse finds the doctor. The doctor comes in, examines her and says, wow, I can't find anything wrong with you. Nothing at all. She checks out of the hospital. The pastor has perspired through his shirt at this point, And he makes it back to his car. And when he gets back to his car, he says, God, don't ever do that to me again. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you see my point. So often our prayers are a little more than religious ritual. It's just the thing we should do. But we don't enter into them with passion, conviction, vision, faith, you know, and that's because we forget who we're talking to, I think. Let me tell you, Moses always knew who he was talking to, and that's why his prayers were different than many people's, and that's why his prayers were passionate, and even in times when he was asking God to do certain things and it didn't seem like God was working, he kept asking. He kept holding on, kept exercising faith. Here's here's the question for us. Do you know who you're talking to when you pray? Maybe you need uh, to look at some of Moses' prayers just as a reminder, as a refresher. That is what we do here. We do refreshers. We do reminders together so that we don't forget. I think many Christians pray little prayers because their God is a little God. But passionate, earnest prayers come from knowing who it is you're praying to. And we're going to be looking at that together. We're going to become, I think, I hope, I pray better prayers from our study of some of Moses' prayers. And I believe that our trust in the Lord is going to grow. And uh, that is my hope. And if that happens, if our trust in the Lord grows and our prayers are filled with greater faith, the implications of that could be far-reaching for us as a people. Now, one more thing I want to mention. Uh, One final thing. I think that as we look at the life of Moses... Uh, our hearts and our minds can be changed so that we actually learn to look at each other differently 
and learn to look at people out there differently than we tend to left to ourselves. Imagine Moses uh, grows up in the Pharaoh's household. Think about what that meant. That was a privileged position. That was a position also of power. Everyone in Pharaoh's household views the Israelites as just cheap labor, aliens, slaves, despicable people, but not Moses. He sees these people as precious to God. He sees them differently than everybody else around him. He's even willing to give up his privileged position for these people. He is willing to give up all that he has to be with them, to live with them, eventually to lead them. And um, you know that he didn't have to do any of that because of his privileged position. He did it at enormous personal cost. And here's my point. Watching and learning from Moses, I think, will help us gain God's heart and God's perspective toward the people around us. You know, I marvel, really, and we'll see this kind of spelled out in many details, but Moses prayed constantly for hard-hearted people. Moses taught hard-hearted people, people who are oftentimes not interested at all in what Moses had to say or in what God was saying. Moses led hard-hearted people people. And Moses loved hard-hearted people. Uh, They were oftentimes not receptive to what was being said or to where Moses was leading. But like God, Moses learned to be patient, developed a heart that when he looked at these people, he loved them. We're going to look at, there's actually a couple of times where, and and if you've read the story, you know this, where God was about to be done with the Israelites and do something through Moses and through his descendants. And in those moments when Moses could have been going, yes, finally, good, finally, this makes sense. He says, no, 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 God. For your glory, for your sake, for your honor, keep these promises that you've made to these hard-hearted people. And he, he goes to the floor, gets on the prayer mat, so to speak, for those hard-hearted people. God had changed the heart of Moses in this process. And I believe our study will help us develop that kind of heart, a heart that cares for people who are hard-hearted and sometimes uninterested and confused and hurting and, and even spiritually deceived. You see, God's plan, God's dream is still the same today as it's always been. It's never changed, never has. Uh, he is still adding people to his covenant family, this family to whom he's made all kinds of promises. That's the covenant family. And God is building his kingdom. Uh, it's still uh, the important, most important prayer we can pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God is pursuing people, bringing them into that kingdom. He's still looking for people to know him and to trust him just enough to obey him. And that, my friends, is what I pray the cry of our heart will be as we study these things together, as we dive into the life of Moses. So my challenge to you is, you know, be here, join us, read the book of Exodus, come prepared, um, and, uh, and dig in. Dig in. So that we can be learners, disciples, who learn to trust just enough to obey. Okay? That's our intro. Next week we dive in right up to our eyeballs, okay? Pray with me. Father God, we really do need you to be our teacher. We really do need you to take us to deeper places of faith and trust. 
And fact of the matter is, God, a lot of times the way you do that is through challenges and through hardships and through things that, uh, frankly, are too big for us to overcome and grapple with. And so we just, in all honesty, need you. God, give us perspective as we study the life, the events, the challenges of Moses. And let us become, in this respect, more like him, more full of trust. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.